0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Greetings. This week we have as our co-host, Arthur Wilczynski. He is an intelligent professional, having worked in uh, various parts of the intelligence enterprise in Ottawa for quite a while. Uh, uh, welcome back to Battle of the Uh
1: Thanks, Steve. It's uh, it's great to be back. And lots
0: happening these days. There is a lot happening these days. And so I guess we'll start with a story of the week, which is unidentified flying objects. Uh as someone who's you know lived through the X-Files and through the 1970s stories of UFOs, how, what is your thoughts about the balloon menace facing Canada these days?
1: Well, I have to say that uh, over all my years uh, in security and, and uh, defense issues, including a bit of a stint as a civilian member of the Permanent Joint Board of Defense for NORAD, uh, no one ever flagged for me um, uh, balloons as either a threat vector or a, a particularly effective high-tech collection platform. So it's all rather bizarre um, what's been happening. I also find it uh, more than a little, little entertaining that people always go to the the extreme possibility of, of thinking about you know extraterrestrial life <laughs> as as uh, as being the 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 source of uh, of balloons. I mean, I think it goes to uh, to show how how quickly things can escalate uh, mm-hmm. in terms of people's imaginations gone wild. Uh, and that actually is for me a bit of a not a bit it's a, it's a real risk uh, in terms of what people's Im- imaginations do when they don't know. Mm-hmm. um about uh about the situation i think that that one of the things that characterize the situation right now is we just don't have a whole lot of information that's in the public domain uh about what those what those balloons or whatever those objects uh, that particularly the last three objects that sure. i think were brought down over north american airspace um what what they are but imaginations sure are running wild
0: well um i think one of the interesting things about this is that, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene has, you know, jumped to these things being used as weapons. But to be fair to the, to her and to other crazy people, <laughs> uh, during World War II, the Japanese did create incendiary bomb devices with balloons to try to burn the forest, you know, create forest fires in northwestern North America, mostly aimed at the United States, but I think a few landed in Canada. Uh, it was not the menace, you know. They didn't. They were not really very successful, but you can see the old balloon uh, systems if you visit Japan and go to the right places for tourism. I forget exactly which museum had them, but I remember seeing them in Japan. Yeah. Uh, so that was a thing. Oh uh, no. Hey. Look, is it a vector? Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to go back to
1: World War II to see how these kinds of you know low-tech devices uh, can be used in a in a you know in a a conflict. Uh, You know, look what Hamas has been using them in terms of of, you know incendiary devices over into into Israel for 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 a while, and they can be quite uh, terrorizing. But I think that you know uh, one has to look at, at at risk as a function of both capability intent. And opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm just, you know, as someone who's also spent a lot of time in in international affairs, I just don't understand the the calculus around risk and benefit uh, that would lead uh, any kind of uh, state uh, actor, particularly one as as sophisticated as and with incredible capability like China, to make the calculus that this is a a good (laughs) uh, thing to do now. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, there's a lot of unknowns and we have to be mindful of, 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 of waiting to see what, what, what these things actually are, but it, 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 you know, it doesn't pass my, my, my personal initial sniff test as being overly kind of intentionally hostile, um, in, in, in intent.
0: Well, and in, in you use one of the interesting words there was now, which is there are now reports that there have been flights of balloons by from China previous to this one. And I guess during the Trump administration, they weren't so significant that the military thought that they needed to tell Trump about it. Now that might've been that they didn't think it was that much of a threat, or it might've been that they didn't want to tell Trump anything because they didn't want him to overreact. Um, okay. And it part of the story here is it does seem to be the case that the defense communities of Canada, the United States got energized mostly because the, the first balloon was spotted by civilians and that otherwise it might have gone on its merry way without anybody really caring that much about it because it was a minimal threat that the Chinese have other ways to take pictures of North America, principally satellites. They have lots of uh, spies in the ground. So it's not entirely clear what the added value is of having a balloon hovering at you know 70,000 feet or 100,000 feet or whatever it is.
1: 100%. I mean, I think that yeah, the, the
0: political environment is one that, uh, that
1: I think uh, frames people's reactions to these kinds of incidents. And it talks about how, um, how precarious uh, sort of the, the political environment is right now with you know, augmented uh, rhetoric around uh, potential conflict. Uh, with China uh, that makes uh, people react publicly in a certain way. They feel compelled uh, because they don't want to be seen from a domestic audience perspective as as weak on on national security. Uh, and I think that when in particular the US is is you know heightened partisan, uh, environment. No one wants to be seen as as, as weak. So there, you know, you get all kinds of calls for very specific national security responses to something that might not be as significant a threat as it is. And I I note that a lot of folks are being very very precise uh, in their ambiguity around the capabilities, uh, even of that initial you know high air helium balloon that was uh, shot down off the uh, coast of the Carolinas. By definition, all, all of these balloons have surveillance capability. That's why they're sent up is to monitor things. It's what they're monitoring that could be potentially problematic. And uh, you know whether or not this balloon was monitoring uh, temperature, composition of atmosphere, uh, greenhouse gases, uh, whatever electromagnetic, blah blah, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, and, uh, but it's, it's just really, really hard uh, to envision the effectiveness of that technology to have some kind of persistent visibility over sensitive targets. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like you said, people can see the thing. So the, 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 the risk associated with it being a, some kind of sophisticated intelligence collection platform that kind of gingerly floats over over North American airspace would really beg the question, like, why take the risk when there are other, you know, more effective and uh, uh, less conspicuous ways of of doing it. But that doesn't mean it's not there, right? Like, you know, the the, the opportunity to integrate, you know, more sophisticated collection into these kinds of technologies might just be there because people wouldn't suspect it. So again, that's why I think like looking at, at this is important and getting the actual data around what was on those platforms is absolutely essential to draw conclusions.
0: But I really think that folks should keep their powder dry. But you mentioned how there's this, the partisan hype in the United States, but in Canada, too, that everybody's leaping on this as an opportunity to say, well, our military is right. under un, unprepared because we had to have the Americans shoot these things down. We can't shoot them down ourselves. What does this say? And my short reaction to that is. It says that NORAD worked. Yeah, exactly. I think mean, what happened is
1: exactly what should have happened is, you know, there's a coordinated response. People decided that this is that a specific action was needed to be taken. Uh, and, you know, the, the assets that were closest by that were able to, to, to you know, affect the uh, uh, the outcome that was desired, you know, pulled the trigger. Uh, that's the way that the whole uh NOrad system is meant to work I think that we we all live in a political context and people will say what 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 they uh, what they need to say I don't think that this is a particularly great example of you know us not having the capacity we, you know that's another question uh, but people I think uh, particularly in, in the security and and uh, and defense community are gonna going try and be persistent in in making sure that government and and sort of the political classes continue to hear that we need uh better and more uh, consistent access to to the systems that will keep North America and you know meet our defense obligations more broadly, whether it's through NATO or other other means. It's a it's a real issue. How challenging that is mm-hmm. right now, I think, is exemplified by the reaction to to these balloons and you know whether or not Canada's aircraft got there first or or should have.
0: And I guess the the government must be looking at this in a couple of different ways. One is. Hey, thanks, China, because one of the things that's been going on the past <clears throat> several years, specifically since 2019, has been the government's been trying to make the case for spending large sums of money to uh, renovate the various warning systems we have in the far north. One of the challenges with these balloons is, yes, there's lots of things floating in the atmosphere, but we do not see them all the time because we there are gaps that, that the things go through, and also that we have filters, so that way... We don't capture every flock of birds, but we capture planes. And the thing about balloons is that they are less easy to observe through our radar systems than the things that are the real threats, right? That if it was a Russian plane, we would have found it, right? Yeah. It, it, it would, we would have waited for it to fly all the way across Alaska and over Canada into Montana if it was a Russian or Chinese plane. But balloons are harder to see. So and I think that's that's- it will justify more spending which is already underway, but of course, I don't want us to be thinking for the next five years, okay, if we now spent more money on NORAD modernization, will I catch the next balloon? I don't think right. that's really the priority that the system should be no. in, but it does suggest that there might be a need for for some more investment, or at least it will give the government the ability to make that argument.
1: I, I think that precisely, I, I completely agree with you. I think that it does show that uh, we'll have some political pressure on, on this government, but any other government that might come, come forward that uh, investing in uh, in domain awareness in, in in North America is important and it's something that uh, that I think Canadians are going to be increasingly uh, calling for in terms of making sure that we have the capability to protect and be effective partners in the protection of North America and NORAD modernization is absolutely part of that. So I think this will just, be another uh, uh, political piece moving Canadians in, in that direction, which I think is a is a is a good thing. But also, we you know, like you said, we want to make sure that we're looking for those things that are actually a threat, and we need to uh, you know understand what. You know what these things are uh, that that have been shot down in in the Yukon and over Lake Huron and 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 elsewhere over uh, over Alaska over the last few few weeks before we make any giant conclusion. And one of the things that always that I always am, am concerned about is that we make retrospective decisions, right? That you know something that we that has caused political embarrassment becomes the focal point uh, for potential investment act, instead of an actual in depth. Uh, informed analysis of what the threat is and mitigating to the threat, not to the the political discomfort of disclosure.
0: Well, this topic brings us to China, uh, that China has been in the news for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that this relates to is before this happened, but very shortly before this happened, an American general, Michael Minahan, put out a memo, an unclassified memo to his people, which of course meant it would leak to the public that basically said that war with China is going to happen in the next couple of years and we really need to ramp up our preparedness. And it was full of the most uh, hyperbole about, you know, the best way to start your day is to put a bullet in somebody's head um, kind of stuff. And yeah. and it's interesting because he's not the commander of PACOM. He's not the commander of, of Pacific Command, which is the the combatant commander of the United States responsible for the Chinese theory. <laughs> he's US air mobility command and US air mobility command is responsible for moving stuff around the world but it's not a, in a leading role so this is a you know a four star officer is a, a big deal but yeah. of, of the big deals he's a, a, small, a small smaller less, deal he's a smaller deal a little yeah. less relevant but it's he's wildly outside his lane and so this yeah. raises two things one is part of today's theme is chinese threat inflation And the other is my favorite thing, which is civil-military relations, which is there's a good piece at defense1.com, which basically puts Minahan in the same context as McChrystal. Stanley McChrystal was uh, famously fired for speaking at a turn as Obama was considering whether to (laughs) reinforce and how big to reinforce the troops in Afghanistan. And he ended up getting fired, which led to the movie War Machine, uh, which is a, uh, a Brad Pitt movie in which my words are actually used, unaccredited. Uh, But that's a story for another day. But the key thing is is that McChrystal got fired for speaking out of turn. It's one thing for generals to advise the civilian leadership. It's another thing for them to try to make policy. And one of the most dangerous policies to make is to say that war is inevitable, because the best way to make war inevitable is to think that it is inevitable. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because then both sides end up thinking, if war is going to happen, I might as well attack when the conditions are most favorable to me, as opposed to thinking well, we should avoid this war. And one of the classic bits of World War I history that's probably less than two hours in the curriculum of, of Ontario students is that World War I wasn't partially caused by everything, in the war was inevitable and they just, ever, each side thinking that they ought to attack first because the war is going to happen anyway. So we are in a very tenuous situation right now where now we have American generals basically beating the drums for war.
1: Yeah, it's deeply problematic. I mean, one of the things I I, I read also a few articles about uh, General Minahan's uh, you know memo because it was it was in a written instruction around preparedness that he sent to his uh, you know to his command uh, where the statement was made and it starts with I hope I'm wrong. But my gut tells me we will fight in 2025. So you know, personally, I think that if you start your sentence with "I hope I'm wrong," chances are it's not something that you should put in an in, a, in an instruction to your, your your colleagues and those who are who report to you. So I think it was like profoundly bad judgment on his part. But as others have ro- uh, written it, I think it, it points to uh, what might be an increasingly an increasing divergence uh, between folks on the on the military side and, and folks on the civilian, which goes to your question about the effect on civil relations. How do you make sure that your 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 fighting force is prepared for all contingencies and how do you get them to that state of readiness and motivation without using the kind of inflammatory hyperbolic language that can then actually precipitate precisely the kind of political miscalculation that could lead uh, uh, to uh, uh, to violence. And particularly in this environment that we're in today, I, I put this kind of language as just another log on the fire of the of the hot air balloons that are that are flying flying around because the, the the rhetoric is getting really out of hand. And how do you then um, tone the rhetoric down on the on on the mill side? Uh, and one of the things about Minahan that I also that I didn't know until I looked a little bit more that he was I think he was number two at uh, in, at Pacific Command for a while. So he's someone who's deeply aware of, uh, of the, the threat environment in, uh, in the region and, and national interests in the region. It's just, un- you know, really unfortunate and I think super bad judgment for him to have brought it into that kind of, you know, more public public discourse. Uh, and also, that I, I think in terms of civil relations, one of the things that I also found interesting was the reaction from the Pentagon to it, because a lot of folks have actually criticized the reaction from the, from the Civ side as being uh, a little too muted. In that they should have been far more forceful, given the potential consequences mm-hmm. of somebody of his uh, of his stature and his position saying what he did. They they need to, I think, be very mindful of that growing gap uh, between what's happening on the political side and the the diplomatic side and how uh, the U.S. is seeing China as a peer competitor and that they need to be, you know, we need to manage that relationship effectively in order for it not to to cross that threshold into a self-fulfilling prophecy of potential conflict. I really think that, you know, everybody needs to take a bit of a deep breath, calm down, and 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 lower the lower the temperature i don't think it's in anybody's interest not the us not china's definitely not canada's uh to see tensions escalate we need to be clear eyed about the the challenges and the threat that, that, that China uh, poses, fundamentally different values, very hostile uh, activities, including in the, in the domestic context in, in Canada. And we need to be uh, mindful about how do we manage that threat in a way that doesn't aggravate it and uh, doesn't make, uh, make you know, conflict, again, you know, inevitable or a part of a, a chain of events that we can't control.
0: That's exactly it. I, uh, your discussion is, makes it clear that this is a very difficult thing where, the, where it's very sensitive about balancing between deterring China and scaring China. One of the things to go back to our history of World War II is that FDR moved the, the American fleet to Pearl Harbor as part of an effort to signal to the Japanese that the United States was serious about <clears throat> Japan's uh, continued aggression in, in the Far East. And Japanese decision makers evaluated that war with the United States was inevitable and so they should find a time and place of their choosing where they can attack most advantageously, as opposed to thinking about how do they avoid this war. So in this current circumstance, we have to continue to be monitoring the Chinese threat, the threat coming from the government of China. They may have been very aggressive in their stance towards Taiwan as well as towards their other neighbors. We're no longer talking about building islands, which is what was so hip in the past 10 years. Now we're talking about, you know, wh- what does Ukraine teach them about how they're gonna attack Taiwan? So we have to be clear headed about this and, and figure out how to deter the Chinese without causing them to think that war is gonna happen. So they better attack before we get our right. next set of missiles to, ta- to Taiwan or whatever it is.
1: This is that's hundred percent.
0: I think oftentimes, we
1: spend you know, on this side of the, of, the, of the Pacific and particularly on the East Coast uh, looking at uh, signals that China may or may not be sending. And we're you know, a lot of folks uh, in, the, in sort of public discourse are very busy parsing uh, everything from that uh, you know, from that high altitude balloon through other uh, you know, kinds of statements from the from the Chinese government in terms of what their intent is. We need to also understand how they perceive our uh, discourse. And what the effect of our discourse is on their risk calculus and their perspective on uh, of threat as well. <laughs> and you know, conversations and statements by the by folks like like Minahan or you know Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene from 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 the U.S. The potential visit uh, uh, again of um, of uh, the the Speaker of the uh, of the House of Representatives to to Taiwan. All of this is 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 an ecosystem uh, that is rife for miscalculation. And again, we need to look at what's in in the interest, particularly of countries like Canada. We want stability. We want we you know we want to make sure that conflict doesn't erupt. We want to make sure that that there's clarity in terms of the rules of state uh, state behavior. Uh, so, for example, the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, needs to be uh, needs to be an example of what is completely anathema to the international system, and that countries are going to uh, to stand up and and defend territorial in, in, integrity. And that we're going to be mature in how we have these conversations, and I'm afraid that that of, of recent weeks, the maturity of that conversation has been in, uh, in in stark absence. And we need to, I think, again try and recenter it in a way that 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 is a little bit more uh, more sophisticated than than uh, than it has been.
0: Now, speaking of sophisticated, why don't we move on? And one of the big challenges we face these days is not balloons flying overhead, but Chinese operatives on the ground in. Canada that there are reports that the the Chinese government has police stations in Canada. And the last I checked they're not part of our police hierarchy. So, yeah, yeah
1: so I mean I, I one thing I need to make clear is that you know as somebody who has been in the in, in intelligence community over a while and has been out of it now for for, for a bit, uh, I have no insight uh, specifically around any of these kinds of uh, pieces of reporting my job was very much focused on on uh, within CSE on for, on foreign intelligence happening outside of Canada so I'm reacting precisely to, to just things that are in, in the public uh, public domain and they are concerning. Uh, because they talk about the level of of, of of interference within Canadian communities and the vulnerability that Canadian communities have to this kind of foreign interference, and uh, there's been enough in the uh, in the public domain that shows that Canada uh, that that China has been acting as a malign actor within Canadian uh, mm-hmm. Canadian society. That we need to be very assertive, in my opinion, around around talking about that. This really does cross red lines and and various thresholds. I think that that. Um, my perspective is that the government has actually been relatively timid in uh, in this space mm-hmm. and can be far more assertive this, this you know, what you've described in terms of, of that kind of, of potential uh, interference with Canadian communities on the ground with, you know, more than, than a few kind of uh, reports on, on the effects that it has, particularly on the Chinese community in places like Toronto and Vancouver. I think that that is a real, you know, step too far, and that we need to be more assertive on that than we have been on the balloons, right? I mean, it, one thing is very clearly unacceptable interference in Canada's domestic affairs. It is a direct threat to our sovereignty, and we need to be very assertive with it. And that's not hyperbolic. That I think is very measured and very precise in, in terms of its uh, in terms of its response, and it's not speculative. And I think that that we need to continue to to, to push back um, back on that, uh, and be mindful of of the effect that it's having on on Canadian citizens and and how they they are are behaving. Uh, as a consequence of what they perceive to be, uh, you know, harassment and threats from uh, from external actors. And, you know, China here, again, I think this goes back to, to un- understanding actors. I'm, I'm just concerned that perhaps the uh, the cumulative effect of various things is, is compounding the risk uh, to conflict. These police stations—I'm you know, you know I'm, I'm using—I know this is a podcast. So I'm using my fingers as air quotes. Yeah, are are deeply problematic when when compounded by the by the rhetoric around things like the balloons. And you know, even if one takes China at its word that this is a wayward uh, weather balloon, their lack of transparency, their lack of of, 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 of engagement with uh, with with Canada and, and, and the U.S. on this, you know, heightens the, the potential miscalculation around around mm. risk to Canadian society. And these uh, unauthorized uh, interference in, in Canadian domestic affairs only compounds that risk. And I think uh, Canada needs to be f- far more assertive in, in expressing its displeasure.
0: So what should Canada do to deal with these these supposed police stations?
1: Look, I mean, I think that, the, uh, you know, the, there needs to be a, a whole lot of coordination between various actors within the within the government of Canada, between the service, between uh, the RCMP, local police forces, the community and global affairs uh, Canada in terms of what's a proportionate response uh, to these kinds of activities. I think we need to be mindful of the role that uh, uh, both declared and undeclared representatives of the, of the Chinese state play in, 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 Canadian, uh, in the Canadian domestic scene. And, uh, you know, maybe a, a couple of uh, well-positioned PNGs uh, aimed at uh, persona non grata, kicking somebody out from consulates might be a, an appropriate kind of uh, statement. Uh, just, you know, I think uh, at some point, and there will be, you know, this is part of the challenge, right? Like, but I think um, folks within, within anytime you talk about expelling somebody who is mm-hmm. a, a diplomatic or a consular representative in, in Canada, the, the immediate uh, reaction within my former colleagues at Global Affairs is, oh my goodness, somebody's you know, a second uh, secretary from the consulate general in some place over there is going to get kicked out as part of the, the uh, you know, the quid pro quo uh, of, uh, of diplomatic relations. But I think that that in, in this case, again, being far more assertive is worth the uh, worth the risk of of losing some representation in China, given what the consequences are for Canadian communities here.
0: Absolutely, I I think the added value of our whatever we're doing in China with you know consulates and whatever whatever cities we have, I don't think is equal to the cost of having our communities in Canada facing coercion. Uh, th- what this reminds me of is that. At its height, the Tamil Tigers had not only protection rackets in Sri Lanka, but they also had protection rackets in North America forcing coercively, quite clearly coercively forcing members of the Tamil communities in the United States of Canada to, to fund their their terrorist uh, activities and in their insurgency. And this is different because the Tamil Tigers were a terrorist group an uh, in insurgency, They are not the adversary, uh, uh, they're not an adversary of the country, a rising great power. So the fact that Chinese are doing this is, is a much bigger deal. And so we need to think about what policies we can follow, such as kicking out various people, maybe thinking about whether the Chinese need to have consulates in Vancouver and Toronto. We have the ability to say, you know, this isn't really working out well for us. Now that would be, you know, going that far would probably be an escalation that's a bit high, but... It should certainly be on the menu, maybe not the menu that we choose today, but the menu that we let the Chinese know is is something that we're considering. It obviously requires policing of our own, because the the definition of sovereign one of the definitions of sovereignty is that the government of the day has a monopoly on coercion. And if you have another force out there in your country trying to coerce your people, that is a threat to your own sovereignty. Much bigger threat than Balloons over the Arctic or, oh, no, the Russians have invested in their Arctic. We make a lot of big hay about threats to our sovereignty. This is a very significant threat to our sovereignty. 100% hundred percent
1: and I think that that there are multiple actors that like you said you know you pointed out uh, a non-state actor in terms of uh, of uh, the Tamil Tigers, but there are other states and other communities that have very very clearly expressed their concern about the role that uh, the foreign actors state actors have played in Canadian society uh you know we've heard a lot about it in the in the public domain for example from the uh, from the Iranian community who have, have expressed concern around the the behavior of uh, Iranian actors in, in in Canada, there are others too. And I think that the kind of clarity around around what is is happening with these unauthorized interference in in Canadian communities by these so called Chinese, uh, you know, Communist Party police stations. I think you need to send a fairly firm message that Canada will not tolerate this kind of behavior. It's not only it doesn't only send a signal. I think to to actors like the the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, But it sends uh, sends a message to uh, to a range of actors that Canada will not tolerate uh, this kind of behavior and it will be put into those states and those actors uh, risk calculus around what they what they are willing to do in in Canada uh, or or other uh, other places I think that it's. uh, like you said this is an absolute threat to canadian canadian sovereignty and we need to have a a more robust response to uh, to protect it and again uh, it, like you said this is in toronto this is in vancouver this is in places like you know this is uh, in in big population centers with large communities who are feeling a particular sense of vulnerability and i think it's it's the it's it's the state's in this case canada's obligation uh, to stand up and protect them
0: we've covered a lot of ground here mostly focusing on on various things to deal with china we had originally this, uh, thought about talking about uh, the NAG ministerial and the tanks, but I think I think that, that's a topic we've talked about before. I've talked about with other co-hosts, so so we'll come back to that maybe in the future. Uh, what I would like to do is highlight our next interview, which comes up after the Stephen Arthur segment. We'll have my interview with Major General Lise Burgon. She is the head of military personnel for the Kingdom Armed Forces. They're facing a steep crisis because they have... Roughly 10% of the calf is is unstaffed, which is putting pressure on the entire system. And so we'll talk about where that shortage came from and how they're responding to it. This is also part of a larger conversation about the calf and its future, given the crises of the past several years. Arthur, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I Very wish you luck as you spend all your time wandering through the high schools, reliving you your youth, as Arthur has become a resource for many of Ontario, Ottawa's high schools to talk about well, World War II and fascism and the Nazis, because we've had a rise of anti-Semitic incidents across Ottawa. I really am glad that you're in this role. I'm sorry that that you need to play this role. You would think that in the 21st century, putting out Nazi graffiti would not be cool uh, for hey, some hey. random degenerates. So I appreciate your effort there. And I appreciate all nice. the efforts that you're doing. I think you're probably busier now that you're retired than wow. when you were, uh, you know, working for the Canadian government.
1: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's a challenge, but I think just if I can just close on, I thank you for mentioning that. But I do see, for example, uh, civics education and, and people understanding uh, the the precarious nature of our democracy and how we need to consistently work on it and be resilient to it is, is part of I think a strategy around. Uh, protecting our sovereignty and protecting our uh, our identity as uh, as Canadians, and it's uh, without it, I think that that uh, we we really put our our democratic traditions at at risk. So I see it as part of the same uh, same effort. So th- thanks a lot for mentioning it, and uh, thanks for uh, for having me on.
0: A pleasure, and hopefully you'll get out and enjoy the blue skies of Ottawa these days, even though all the snow is now ice. Take care and have a, a, a happy Valentine's Day as we're taping the day before this drops on February 15th. Cheers. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, uh, Major General Pagol.
2: Hey, Steve, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I think or in ordinary times, we might not be thinking that much about your command, uh, personnel command but we've been having lots of stories about this and and obviously general air has been talking a lot about the personnel crisis that that we're short something like ten thousand troops uh sailors aviators uh and given the size of force that's that's a really significant problem uh so i guess the first thing is is given we have this crisis what is has caused it? it's just a, a temporary thing because of covid and the scandals over the past couple of years or is there something more systemic systemic that causes recruitment to be harder now than before retention harder now than before
2: Yeah, that's a really good question and uh, we spend a lot of time looking into it and honestly what we've been able to figure out is that it's not a single factor. It's really a series of events that have brought us to this deficit. You know, of course, uh, COVID did not help. Uh, We stopped recruiting for a while because we couldn't conduct any of the training. So almost a backlog of uh, two years of no training. During that same time too, we had no outreach activities with the communities and that is a big part of our recruitment. Rooting. So we lost a bit of that connection with Canadians because we couldn't go into the communities. We couldn't go into the high school. Uh, we can have like, you know, open door for some of our base so that it was a big loss. And now we're feeling the effect of that. Um, I have to be honest, you know, the, the our culture and the leadership crisis has tarnished our reputation. And some of the Canadians have lost faith in the calf. So we have to recover on that one, too. So finally, you know, the market. Um, uh, is extremely competitive with mm-hmm. more jobs than employees. I mean, every industry in Canada is really challenged on the recruiting front. We are not alone. Uh, I was at a Five Eyes uh, meeting before Christmas and the everyone is in the, the same situation with recruiting. I actually heard a stat a couple of days that says that there's 1.7 jobs for every applicant. So that's kind of where we are right now, a mix of uh, of factors and we have to recover.
0: Okay, well... I should have introduced you probably with the first question, which is besides recruitment and retention, what else is your job as chief of personnel?
2: Wow. Yeah. So, yes, you know, uh, my number one priority is reconstitution. With, mm-hmm. of course, the line of efforts focusing on uh, recruitment, on the training maximization, because it's, it's great to bring those recruits into the door. But if we don't train them uh, to the path uh, from recruit to uh, operational functional point where they're going to be operationally ready, like there's no progress. Mm-hmm. And of course, the. The, you know, the third uh, big priority in that reconstitution is the retention of our people. Uh, so that's the priority and uh, chief military personnel uh, right now. But I can't forget the rest of the CMP organization like Health Services, mm-hmm. which when you look at it is the 14th biggest outservice service in Canada. There's the education piece that, you know, the two military college, staff college in Toronto, the osid Institute for the non-commissioned officer professional development. Of course, there's uh, you know, not a lot of people are tracking the transition group with the centers across the Canada, helping our people to transition to uh, civilian life. And if you add to this, you know, the Justice Arbor's report, the anti-racial panel recommendation, uh, plus, of course the daily running uh governance meeting business planning uh etc throw in a crisis here and there because there are a few of them so trust me i have enough to keep me busy right now
0: (laughs) yes uh i guess in some ways the just the recruitment is the tip of the iceberg that a lot of the stuff that you're doing we don't really see see a whole lot of but it's all all fits together um and so you might be the The busiest woman in show business uh compared to some of your other other uh, senior level officers i guess one of the questions that's that's created some confusion the past couple years is there's been a creation of a lot of other actors in your space and so we now have cpcc which is the culture and professional conduct command and we also have the arbor report and so how do you work with these other entities who are sort of Stepping on the traditional terrain of, of personnel.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and it does. I'm sure that from the outside, it does appear like uh, the same personnel terrain, but it's not. Honestly, there's a clear delineation between the work that CPCC uh, is doing and what I'm doing in my command. From a culture evolution, you know, the way I see it, anyway, is that General Carignan is the team captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of us, uh, the level one commander, like the army, the air force, the navy, Southcom—I mean, we're all playing on on our team. Okay, this is a team sport right now. So when I arrived at CMP last year, uh, or almost two years ago now, my God, time flies. (laughs) Uh, We established a campaign plan on diversity, inclusion, and culture. And it's really focused on the activities within the authority of uh, chief military personnel. Again, mostly concentrating on recruiting, uh, career management, health, and retention. But at the end of the day, everything that CMP uh, do on diversity Uh, Inclusion and Cultural evolution really supports the CPCC mandate. Again, on the coordination piece with with the Arbor, with CPCC and ourselves, uh, we have regular governance meetings where we talk about our initiatives, we discuss priorities and resources because as you're tracking, resources are um, limited and we need to ensure that we provide the right priority to ensure that we keep a good track on everything that's going on, but it's working very well. And honestly, when you look at what we delivered in the last 18 months, I believe, anyway, that it shows clear progress, like from CPCC mandate, but also from all the change that we brought forward in uh, military personal command.
0: Well, I guess that's one thing that's uh, come up in some of my conversations with military people, is that there's been a lot of effort to change things in terms of the procedures, the processes. And I guess the question is, is for the average Captain or sergeant, if they've been around for five or 10 or 15 years, can they see the changes or these things, changes that you've made, are things that will become perceptible over time? For instance, uh, one of the, the conversations has been about promotions. That one of the challenges of the past is that it seemed like an old boys' network was responsible for promoting people. And so toxic people, people who are bad leaders, were getting promoted. And I've had conversations with senior leadership about how the promotion processes have changed, but these are very recent changes. And so it's sometimes hard to tell whether the procedures are working or they just haven't been given enough time yet. And I'm kind of curious as to where you stand on that. Can you see the changes that you've made actually affecting outcomes now, or is this something that's going to happen in two or three or four years?
2: Well, I think it's a, you know, it's impacting. Like we're seeing the outcomes now. Uh, it might not as be as visible as it will be in two, three, or five years, especially mm-hmm. on the promotion side. But you know, like the bias training that people have to do to be on selection board now mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that awakening. You know, the the fact that we've done GBA plus analysis on all the script that we use for promotion to uh, make sure that all those considerations are being taken. We also have employment equity person on the boards uh Mm -hmm. each board to represent everyone's equity so you know progress, yes, now. Uh, I think we're going to see it more as we go forward. Uh, the inclusive behaviours that we just uh, released, um, I think it was last uh, February and the Aide Memoir, I think this is going to be like, honestly, it's a game changer, okay? Mm-hmm. Really looking at what we want our leadership to to be, uh, what our leaders need to emulate, and we are going to judge our leaders based on those uh, inclusive behaviours traits, and they will get you know, recognized, they will get promoted, They will get assigned into their command position based on that. And of course, you know, if you have a leader that is showing like inclusivity, then of course, as a subordinate, you you look at your leader and you'll change your behavior to be the same way. So I think this is a game changer. I always say it's like the snowball that we've built and it's on top of the hill and it's starting to roll down and it will make huge change in the next five years. You know, how we select, how we evaluate, how we select leaders from uh, non-commissioning to officers will mm. make a, a huge difference and our new uh, uh, PACE performance appraisal system will also help in that way. So I think, you know, the, the, the progress is there. Um, of course, it's just going to get bigger as we go. Other progress that are very visible, you know, like the, the change to the dress instruction. That is another one that we've done uh, working on women's health initiative, the feminization of uh, ranks in French which forever I had to call myself by a male rank because those ranks did not exist in French. So all those little things are making a change. I mean, there was, you know, as you know, I did my fellowship and look at all inclusion and the CAF and there was no magic solution Mm -hmm. to be more inclusive. There was a whole bunch of things that we had to change into the entire organization from infrastructure to career, to equipment, to HR policy, to health. So, you know, it's not magic. So all of these projects and initiatives will need to be developed and implemented. And we've done already quite a few, but it's going to take a a few more years to get everything that we've got planned to be be done. So I'm feeling positive anyway.
0: And and so one of the challenges you face is you're making these changes, but there are people out there on, on a variety of sides who are either not happy with the changes or people who are not happy that the changes are happening fast enough so the, the media has covered both retirements by senior women who don't feel as if the military is quite ready for them yet or you have of course uh, i'll say it out loud the mason of speech from the fall which i'm not i'm actually going to be engaged in an academic study soon to figure out whether the public thinks that that Masonov is speaking for the active military people but the fact that there's people out there saying these things can create confusion about what kind of progress is being made. So, I know as head of personnel, you can't, you know, dictate what retired people say. But I'm curious as to how do you react and how do you try to shape both the realities of people in the cafes these days, but also the perceptions, because people may, you know, leave the military not because of they, the realities they face, but what they perceive to be the challenges ahead?
2: Yeah, that, that's a good question. And and honestly, you know, I, I don't really listen to the naysayers. I have a vision. We have a plan of where we're going in the future and we're going there. Uh, we have to do a better job at communicating with our troops, Okay, explaining. I think that's where the CAF has changed quite dramatically in the last mm-hmm. 30 years. People need to understand the why. The new generation needs to understand the why. They need to be explained. There needs to be a discussion. <laughs> but they need to understand the reasoning behind, and, mm-hmm. and we have to do better at that. So I think communication, um, we have to do better job internally. Um, I wish that we could also be able to reach uh, Canadian society a little bit more from our messaging, you know, the positive things, the positive yeah. changes that we're making. You know, again, sometimes I feel like the negative is always what gets published and not the positive. But, you know, like uh, we are creating those opportunities with stakeholders uh, briefing, with media briefing, to let them know that what we're doing and the progress that uh, they're making. I can't force anyone to write something positive about the CAF and I can communicate what we're doing. So mm-hmm. that's that's our job. That's our challenge right now. And uh, yeah, we'll see where the, the future will go. But uh, again, I'm positive.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the more specific things because a lot of the potential changes present trade-offs that are difficult to to finesse so uh and just difficult to implement so one of the ideas that louise arbor had uh, Supreme Court justice Lewis arbor had in her report was to have a more probationary period for the initial recruits that maybe let them in faster don't vet them quite as 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 closely whether, uh, so that way you can get them in because one of the challenges of recruitment has been that people are waiting forever for the process before they can actually Don the uniform and start the training process. And then if you have a probationary period, then you can identify better, perhaps those people who are problematic and then kick them out before the end of the probationary period. And, and so I'm curious as to whether what you think about that and what your recommendations have been uh, on that.
2: Yeah, it's. I like this recommendation. Uh, the only challenge is the legislation change that we need to get done for this one. Uh, mm-hmm. This one is not going to be easy because uh, I think QRNOs and I believe that the National Defence Act would need to be changed, and every mm-hmm. time we need to change the NDA, it's uh, it's very difficult to say the least. But, you know, I think at this point uh, on that uh, piece, we are using our existing policies uh, Mm and levers to release members in a more expedited manner if they do demonstrate uh, unacceptable behaviours, attitudes or beliefs uh, during training or during initial employment. So that's kind of an interim uh, solution that we were able to establish to try mm-hmm. to to get the good idea of Madam Arbor, but try to implement in a easier uh, way until we can implement that provisionary uh, period.
0: And I guess that speaks to one of the challenges is if you speed up the recruitment process, you're more likely to make mistakes about who you recruit. And so how do you balance the desire to move things faster so you you get the force larger faster so that way you discourage fewer people from joining at the same time as making sure that you don't uh, recruit people who are extremists.
2: Yeah, well, you know, at this point, we're really seeking the sweet spot between speed and risk uh, by making sure that we have a very high quality screening process uh, that can deliver as efficient efficiently as as possible. You know, like mm. the, the new suitability screening uh, includes reference check, tattoo screening, interviews. And uh, now we have a suite of uh, scientifically developed and validated tools that mm. will help us assess aptitude right fit cognitive uh, capacity judgment decision making and character so those uh, those uh, tools are are continually updated and improved to better screen people uh, so that the people that do not align with our CAF professional values are identified right away, screened, and and not allowed in. Are we going to make mistakes? Yes, we Mm. will. I mean, that is that dilemma between we need more people. Uh, We're going to have to take a little bit more risk. But right now, we have really good mitigation measure in place that we think uh, it makes sense.
0: Okay. I guess the other question that's come up from our board uh, regarding recruitment was can you subcontract the recruitment out to non-military people? Because we have a personnel shortage. One way to deal with that is to real take people who are right now in the business of recruitment and put them back into what other jobs that we need and then have civilians do the advertising and the first levels of vetting and staffing the desks at all the offices around the country so that way we can put more of our people into doing the other parts of the business.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, the recruiting modernization team, which we call REMIT, uh, was uh, stood up last summer and is looking into that piece right now, like the contracting. At this point, you know, we're not looking at subcontracting like the Australian military forces is doing, Mm -hmm. but we are looking very seriously at what activities, as you said, could be contracted so that we focus our military personnel, you know, the people in uniform on the key activities that are Person in uniform needs to be uh, doing into that recruiting field again. Like as you said, do we need military personnel doing security check, doing admin, potentially the medical piece? Uh, so this is uh, it's going to be important that we prioritize our resource for the essential task and and look at the full team approach. Okay, like reconstitution is not uh, only a CMP task. We're going to need the full team from uh, reservists from uh, uh, public uh, service, uh, from contractors, and also from uh, the industry and a- academia. Like th- There's many, many uh, solutions out there, and we're going to need everyone to help us to get there.
0: I guess that leads to the, the big question for your job, which is, do we need to have a military person doing your job, or can we give this to civilians? So that way you can go command fighter wings or helicopter wings or whatever your Pajamas you're currently wearing. Uh, I, I don't know. Are you a helicopter pilot? Is that is that your background? Uh, yes. So, uh, you know, you fly in helicopters and commanding helicopter pilots is, is what you've done in the past. And now you're you're flying a desk that's responsible for personnel policies. You know, you're going to do that for two or three years. You haven't had a lifetime in, in in doing running personnel. Whereas if we hired a civilian, they could potentially be there for a longer term. While we take you and your rare skill set and put it to to use for what you've been doing all your career, so how do you feel about that?
2: Yeah, well, I think I'm staying here forever. Now, just teasing. <laughs> uh, you know, I think bringing a, a military person into the world of HR as a chief military personnel is that. You know, of course, we are not HR HR experts, but we understand the military life and we can identify with the issues and the challenges because we've lived them. OK, so for me, I would say that it's even more interesting because, as you said, I have never worked in the HR field. Uh, most of my career has been spent on the operational side, uh, but I guess this is what diversity Means okay, is bringing that perspective into uh, the job. So the work that I did on my fellowship with the Center of International uh, Defense and Policy really align uh, with what I'm doing in in Mm -hmm. this position also, uh, which is which was a great bonus. So at the end, you know, I I have a whole bunch of H R experts that are here supporting and advising me, and I listen very well. Okay, I listen to their experience and their wisdom. Uh, so I think I might be a bit biased when I evaluate my performance, but, you know, from the track record of what we've done in the last 18 months, I think it's working very well.
0: Okay. Um, let's get back to some of the more specific issues. We hear a lot about the missing middle, that what we really need is to keep around the the majors and commanders who are doing all the training and the, lead, the direct leadership of the forces so how can we address that problem? What is the, the biggest challenge in, in retaining sort of the mid-level officers, uh, mid-level non-commissioned people uh, who are really the backbone of the calf?
2: Yeah. Um, you know that as I briefed, and I was talking earlier, that retention piece is very, very important right now. So I got my entire team—compensation and benefit, the career management strategy, health—all looking of, on on why are people leaving, uh, understanding. Like we just released a, a retention strategy, so that we can do a deep dive and better understand why people are leaving. So part of that retention strategy will be exit interviews Mm -hmm. that will give um, more um, authority and flexibility to commanders at all levels to talk to their people, hopefully before they've really made up their mind and leaving the military, and and see if there's a way to convince them to stay and work from there. Uh, understanding why why people leave, so that we understand the gaps, so that we can come up with uh, with uh, different initiatives to stop um, the bleeding, if I can say. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I, again, when we look at why people leave the military, um, I. Again, job satisfaction. They want to be challenged. Uh, they want stability in their life. That's a, a big one. Uh, the cost of living right now is extremely challenging. So again, working on those compensation and benefit to make sure that uh, our people um, can have a good quality of life. You're not gonna be rich. You're not gonna be rich in the military, okay? But there has to be a fair compensation and benefit for what we're doing every day and what we give to our country uh, by our service. Another uh, way of, of that closing that, uh, that missing middle, as you're saying, is to make sure that the military personnel uh, are doing tasks that can only be performed by military members, okay? So, as I said uh, before, we got to look at maybe some some tasks have been done by uh, people in uniform in the past, but do they really need to do this? So maybe it's time to look at public servant as contractor uh, again. Industry, how do we do things differently uh, to to gap that missing metal for the for the next 10 year? Honestly, so it's it's a mix of things that we need to be creative
0: mm-hmm. and uh,
2: but really working on that retention, that unhealthy attrition of our people. Honestly, uh, because healthy. The attrition is me leaving after a great career. But, mm-hmm. you know, the unhealthy piece is the people that have not completed their training, the employment equity group that are leaving, especially before they've reached their pensionable time. So how, how do we stop people from releasing from the military?
0: And you mentioned stability. And so I guess one of the challenges is that whenever I talk to military people, they can count the number of times they've actually, a lot of them lose track of how many times they've moved and that might have been easier back in the day when, if you're a married couple, only one person was in the military or only one person had a job. But now that, you know, a lot of people in the military either are married to somebody in the military or married to somebody who's got a job and combine that with the escalation in housing prices, moving's really, really complicated. And so has there been any conversations about either lengthening how often people, how long people serve in particular positions or uh reducing the number of times people are rotated across the country so if you're a naval officer or or you're a sailor maybe just stay out in the west coast for most of your career or stay out in the east coast for most of your career not go back and forth or if you're an air force officer you're either at cold lake or jacuda but not going back and forth there are costs to that obviously in terms of creating many cultures and you know segregating the force in some ways but i guess so much movement creates a lot of stress and so i'm curious as to whether there's any conversations about changing how often people are moved around uh so that way they have more stability they don't have to worry about so much about housing prices that kind of stuff
2: yeah that's that's a good uh question and we talk about it all the time how do we reduce movement how do we maximize posting how do we change a little bit how we see someone's career progression so that they don't have to change and move every 3 years to hit you know this target and this target and this target uh but at the end of the day the the needs of the service we need to meet them and not a lot of people, I have to say, uh, want to go to some uh, places like like Gander, like Shiloh, like Cold Lake. So there needs to be a rotation. okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so people need to be there because that's uh, an operational commitment that we have to sustain. So that needs will always going to be there. The need for progression and different experience for individual will also be required. So it's a balance uh, that we we need to maintain, Uh, we have better communication with our people. So now if you are a sergeant and if you want to stay a sergeant forever and you're happy in Shearwater, then that's not a problem. But you got to realize that if you want to be the next CAF uh, chief warrant officer, well, you cannot have your entire career in Shearwater and then expect to have the right experience to take over the leadership of a position like that. So it's the balance. But we are a lot more flexible on this. We've also uh, Um, release a remote work policy that allows people in some specific position to work remotely Okay, when it makes sense. So that's also great. And on the fact of, you know, the cost of living, uh, we are looking on a gamut of initiatives to try to help our people. Of course, you have to remember that the housing crisis affects all Canadians. Okay, not only the CAF member, but for sure, we need to help our serving members because we can't forget that they have to move more often due to service uh, uh, requirements. So I wish on that piece of cost of living that it was one magical solution, Mm -hmm. but again, And every member's situation is different. So one size fits all does not apply. So we are looking at, again, a housing strategy with many uh, different initiatives that will support our members. And I think that the update to the post-living differential, which has not changed since 2008, is is really a major concern for our members across the country, will be the first of those initiatives, which, I'll cross my finger, should be approved uh, very shortly. I can't give you a timeline very shortly that's the best i can do
0: well anytime you have to change the pay of people it means treasury board and everybody i know in town when they think about treasury Board, sort of get a little nervous because it takes much effort to 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 change those things one thing i'd want to at some point ask uh minister anand is is changing legislation easier or harder than, uh, than uh, changing uh, the numbers that one has submitted to Treasury Board. I'm, I'm curious as to which is the bigger obstacle for a lot of these changes. So I guess one of the challenges we face right now for promotion is well, there are fewer bodies. There There's just fewer people in the force. And so there becomes a trade-off between somebody who has been excellent in certain leadership positions, but has also exhibited some problematic behavior. But there's not that many people at that rank or in that special specialty uh, with that experience for that other post. And so is there a sense that sometimes people are so indispensable that we have to look past their, their past indiscretions or, you know, I'm trying to figure out the priorities uh, that we're, we're facing these days.
2: I would say no, honestly. Uh, and also, you know, when you look at the recommendation provided by Madame Arbor, you uh, mm-hmm. Those even will ensure even more that we are screening, uh, that our screening process is a lot more diligent for those behaviors. So, um, I mean, we're not perfect, uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't say that we there's any issue here.
0: Because I guess one of the complications of developing these new promotion procedures, like the idea of a 360 review, right? We're now, that's much more serious than it was in the past. We have anonymous reviewers who are not selected by the candidate and all the rest, but that's, that there's two challenges. One is anybody who's had any ambition has probably angered some people in one way or another. So one question is, is how do you control for that? How do you address the fact that everything's going to be noisy? The second thing is, is that's one of many different inputs in the promotion process. So there's the tests, there's all the other things that have gone on. And so I'm curious as to how do you weigh this? Because, you know, my idealized, you know, first perceptions of this, I thought, well, if, if people are subjected to the 360 reviews, where superiors, peers and subordinates all get to chime in, then tactically just can't possibly be promoted. But maybe that's setting up an expectation that's completely unrealistic, because you know how toxic is toxic, and how much of this might be somebody's a really good leader, but because they've had initiative, they've angered somebody whose toes they stepped on. So how do you address that 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 complicated situation?
2: Yeah, very carefully. Now, um <laughs> you know that when we look at uh, the the psychometric testing, mm-hmm. those testing become parts of the points for promotion, okay. So they are, part of with your uh, performance appraisal uh, that is what builds your file to go to a promotion board but right now the 360 evaluation is not being used uh, in that process our 360 is really being used as a validation tool after someone was identified for a command appointment or a promotion so we do the 360 as you said a whole bunch of uh, raiders from uh, subordinates and and peers and and bosses uh, with the diversity and everything else in mind. And then we look at that. And um, there's experts reviewing the files and they will identify flags, okay? And then as a leader, when I look at a 360 evolution and what the flags are, if if those flags are really concerning then I can go back to specific uh, people and ask the question and dig in a little bit on the character of the individual because again the, the, the change is we were promoting on performance and now we're switching performance and character so that we better understand the leaders that we're putting into those positions both from officers and for NCM so of course we're still we're still evolving this process. I mean, we started it at the general officer like a year and a half ago, so it's getting quite good. And we're going to expand in the lower ranks with colonels, lieutenant colonels and all command appointment for non-commissioned members and also for officers. So it's a work in progress, but that's kind of the way it's going to occur. Of course, um, you know, common sense needs to prevail. Like I don't have a perfect uh, career. Uh, We make mistakes. Uh, Sometimes you say something, but in the overall, your character is very what's important.
0: I guess one of the last things I want to ask you is, uh, I had a conversation with the the CDS more than a year ago when he was describing to me this process, and he said, well, you know, if people meet a certain criteria, they're put in Group A, and they'll be placed in the positions that they be promoted and given command positions, and if they're they fall short, they're placed in Group, you know, sort of a Group B where you know they they face you know, but more training, more education, ma- mentoring, counseling. And so forth to make sure that they can improve and then be fit for promotion later on. And I had meant to ask them, but didn't. So I'll ask you: Is isn't there a group C where, in the course of this promotion process and command allocation, command process, that you learn things that tell you that this person not only should not be promoted, but she but should be removed from the military? So is there is there a process by which, as you're evaluating people for all these positions, that you learn things and go, okay? this person really is is problematic for the calf and we should direct them out, you know, push them out. Is is that a possible part? Is that part of the process?
2: It hasn't happened yet, but uh, that's why we have our uh, administrative review. If we Mm. see something that is Mm. that serious, uh, that would be the process that we would take.
0: Okay. So I guess that leads to the last question, which is how do you know you're making progress? You feel as if things are going better, but What are the kinds of things you can point to as knowing that, you know, things are better now than they were a year ago?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to measure clear outcomes, especially in a very short time frame. But I think that the morale in the CAF is improving and I believe that the trust in the institution is on the rise. My hope, honestly, is that the troops across Canada are seeing that we are extremely serious about their well-being, about their safety, and that we are taking concrete action to improve the CAF culture and to be more inclusive. When you look at a concrete uh, measurement piece, Well, the recruitment number going up uh, with more applicants showing up at the recruiting center or online will be a good indication. And I have to say that uh, I have to point out to a great success on our permanent resident initiative because as of last week, we've had more than 5,000 permanent uh, residents applying to the CAF. And that is since we've uh, opened this program in November. So that is clearly is progress, okay? Uh, On the retention, uh, we hope to see a decrease and overall attrition especially the unhealthy attrition again as i talked individual leaving the calf before they reach um, their operational status the employment equity group, look at promotion rate, okay, promotion rate of women and visible minority. We need to do better. That is going to be a clear measurement. And finally, the troops will tell us if we are making progress. Trust Mm me. Uh, I have town hall across the country, and uh, I'm listening to soldiers, aviators, and sailors, what they're saying. And trust me, they are not shy to tell us what we need to fix. So that listening piece is important. Yeah, there's a lot on our plate, everyone's plate. But again, I think, you know, in my career, I've never seen so much support being provided by the government, our minister, the chief of defense staff, all the L1, including CPCC and myself. You know, we know the task that needs to get done and we're all on board.
0: Well, I I, I do want to say that I I think we've well been surprised at how successful the change in the permanent residency situation was, that the uptake was that big, that fast. I've been occasionally pitching one possible thing to help recruitment, which is something that the Americans used to do and may, may still do, which is making service in the military a pathway to citizenship. That is to encourage people to emigrate to Canada and if they serve in the military, then that will make give them a faster pathway to becoming a permanent resident and a citizen. Is that something that you that you've been discussing?
2: Yes, we are in discussion with IRCC, but this is you know the next bound. This is not the now, this is uh, after we've solved that we're working very hard uh, with IRCC and they've been extremely supportive. And how do we facilitate the exchange of information so that we can expedite a security check and their education? Okay, so it's easier to transfer um, so that we can get them in faster. The next bound, I can't tell you when it's going to be, but it's going to start those discussion uh, to to get there with the path to citizenship.
0: Well, uh, I look forward to your progress there. I really appreciate the time you've taken today. I, I think you're a wonderful example of what happens when uh, military folks hang out with academics, because I think that that your current job really helped, but it, it was benefited by hanging out with Stephanie Von Lackey and other folks at Queens uh, with their uh, defense fellow program. And it makes you more comfortable hanging out with people like me. So I really appreciate you spending the time today talking to us about uh, the challenges you're facing. As this is really important. Uh, the CDS has referred to the personnel challenge as an existential threat. And every day we're hearing about more and more tasks that were being asked the military to do Increasing our footprint in Latvia, I think, is probably the next big announcement soon. Uh, so it puts everybody under pressure, particularly the person at the top, responsible for keeping people in the military and getting more people in the military. So again, Jerome, thank you very much for your time.
2: Hey, thanks. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, hopefully you can invite me again to give more update on the great stuff that we're doing.
0: Fantastic. Take care and uh, good luck with your, your ski trip uh, this weekend.
2: Thank you.